for I, I think a very a very challenging paper you know, with a, a very interesting thesis. Um, I am going to take issue with you slightly on history being unfair to John Dillon. He is the subject of one of the great Irish political biographies, the, the uh, biography of FSL Lyons, and I think for a long time after uh, Lyons' book came out, uh, he was seen as a, as a sort of hero. But however, that's for the discussion afterwards. Our next uh, speaker is uh, John Bruton, a former Taoiseach, uh, former UN, uh, uh, EU ambassador to the US. Sorry. <laughs> well, well I, I spent a good uh, part of this morning uh, reading Lee Lyons' book on, on, on John Dillon because I had a lot of swatting to do, a lot more swatting than most of my practice historians who are sharing the platform with me. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the, the copy I have of, of, of Lee Lyons's book originally belonged, I bought it in a, in a second-hand bookshop in Black Rock, a place with which uh, Owen Harris is familiar, um, and it had the name Donoco Brian on it. It was obviously the property of the former chief whip of Fianna Fáil, uh, who uh, bought this book, although it didn't look as if the book had been read all day, <laughs> but, but at, least, at least it had been bought. Uh, for more than I paid for it, I think. Um, I, 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 I also, this is important to say, that Dylan uh, was a reconciling figure in many ways, and uh, M. de Valera attended his funeral in 1927. Uh, which I think is also uh, significant. I, th I think it's very important that we recognise that commemorations are, are not about the past. Commemorations can't change what happened. All they can do is help us learn lessons from the past that may be useful to us in the future. Commemorations are always selective. You can't commemorate everything. You only pick the things you think are relevant. And to my mind, commemorating John Dillon in all the complexity of his life, all the compromises he had to make, all the difficult calls that were part of his life, is much more relevant to the sort of Ireland we have today than commemorating the poetic simplicity of violence. And that's why I think it's so important, if we want to look forward, and if we talk about a new politics, which involves having government in a country that doesn't have a majority in uh, Parliament, well, there's no experience more relevant, I think, to the new politics in Ireland in 2016 than the experience of the Irish party holding the balance, as they did on two occasions, uh, in the House of Commons and using that balance of power so effectively to get land reform in the first instance and home rule in the second. Looking back on, on John Dillon's career, I think it's important to say that as much as home rule was important to him, solving the land question was vitally important to him. He represented first Tipperary and later East Mayo both of them places where the land struggled and the lack of adequate land, the paucity of the resource in the land, was literally causing people to starve to death. And John Dillon rightly gave enormous priority to that, perhaps more so than did John Redmond, because John Redmond came from Wexford, where, should we say, not putting a tooth in it, the land is a bit better. 
uh, and people probably didn't starve or weren't as much at risk of starving to death. And I mean, looking at his first uh, interventions in Parliament when he was elected in 1880, I, one of them was about um, proposing a tenant relief bill. Uh, and the other, interestingly enough, and this will please Felix Slark in no end, was an intervention looking for more resources for the National Library. <laughs> he, was comparing, he was comparing the inadequate resources that were being given to the National Library relative to its sister institution in London. Uh, and he was right, of course, on that too. Uh, another issue which I think, again, is very relevant, and here I want to you know, strongly endorse what was said a few moments ago by several speakers about the importance of party discipline and party loyalty. If you want to make things happen, you cannot have a doll of 166 individuals. You'll never be able to pursue any policy consistently. You must have discipline. And one of the first things that Dylan was concerned about on entering Parliament in 1880, as a very young man, and there are, there's evidence for this in Lee Lyons' book, writing to Parnell and proposing motions to tighten the discipline of the parliamentary party so that it could stick together in order to achieve larger objectives rather than be picked off individually in the interests of uh, local constituency considerations something I think you would say is very up-to-date in terms of the sort of politics we have, have today. He also had to do, uh, and I realise I'm addressing Reverend Fathers in this audience, I should have started by referring to the Reverend Fathers that are here, he also had to hoe a difficult row in terms of relationship with the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was absolutely vital to the development of Irish nationalism in the years after the famine. Without the organisational resource that the church provided, without the, very often the only literate persons in a given parish would be the priests. So the Irish party, the, 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 um, the Irish party didn't have really an option but work with and through the church. And they did, successfully. But, although they relied on the church, they never wanted to be too uh, dependent on it. And as has been pointed out by others, Dylan was prepared, and this is one of the things he said in his final explanation of his defeat in 1918, that the church had got too influential and was looking for too much and adopted uh, Tim Healy as their champion uh, rather than uh, John Dillon and John Redmond because Tim Healy was rather more deferential uh, to the church than was uh, Dillon. But again, he was dealing with something that's very relevant today. What's the right balance in terms of listening to what the church has to say, the eternal values that it represents, and yet at the same time trying to make political judgments in a lay sense? Another big issue which he has to deal with, again, you could say irrelevant today, where a number of TDs are being put under pressure not to take a pay increase to which they are fully entitled. Uh, in Dillon's time, MPs were not paid at all. They had to get the boat train over to London on Monday morning and come back on Friday night. In Dillon's case, I believe he wouldn't have been able to continue his political career at all were it not for the generosity of other members of his family. His father's family in Balladurine, 
members of that family who kept the business going, which kept him going, and the house in which he lived in Northgate, Georgia Street, which belonged to his mother's family, in which he lived free of rent. That, I think, is an example of how, in a sense, someone like him uh, made a significant, and his family made, a significant financial sacrifice so that he could be in politics. Um, Obviously, in dealing with the land question, Dylan had to wrestle with, shall we say, the conflicting values, the sanctity of a contract and the ability of people to meet the terms of that contract and whether it was a contract between equals. In many cases, tenants had signed up freely to rent land at a given rent, and they were bound in contract, and this was a concern to the bishops at the time and was the subject of a papal rescript, they were bound to pay their debts. But what happened if, one, the contract had been entered into between two forces that were not equal, the landlord being in a stronger position than the tenant, and secondly, if agricultural conditions changed, as they did? So in the Plan F campaign, which Dylan uh, supported on 116 estates, he proposed that the landlord would be confronted by the tenants who say, well, we'll pay you 40% of what is the existing rent, and if not, no rent at all would be paid. Now, this was, again, a very contemporary issue uh, in terms of we're talking now about globalization and the sanctity of contracts and predictability and so, so forth. But what happens if, if the forces that are making the contract are of an equal weight? Sometimes you have to have a third party step in to actually change the contract. Um, he uh, also was a man who suffered uh, a lot of ill health throughout his life. He... Uh, he suffered from a number of ailments, the meanings of which I don't quite know what they're re- referred to in the book, but essentially he wasn't, as they say in Ireland, a well man all the time. And he, at one stage, he actually retired to pol- from politics for a full two years and went off to Colorado, not a bad place to go. He was lucky enough, I think, to have a, a, a first cousin, if I'm right. Brother, his brother, his brother lived in Colorado, and he spent two years, two years there, and recovered his health. But um, he, yet he, he, conti- he, conti- he continued. Um, he was a brave man. Uh, in the events in Mitchellstown, where the RIC, in a panic, opened up on uh, a demonstration for hearing that somebody would be injured by the demonstrators, and as a result, a number of demonstrators were killed. John Redmond, or John Dillon, walked alone across the square to the RIC and asked them to desist. He could have been shot himself. Uh, but in order to save the lives of others, he was willing to, to put his life at risk uh, to, to that end. His personality uh, is probably most interestingly contrasted with the subject of Frank Callanan's excellent biography, uh, Tim Healy. Um, Dylan was a man who'd had the benefit somewhat of a classical education, a medical education. Uh, Somebody said he was born to the purple, whatever that means. Uh, He was pessimistic, uh, methodical, 
and disciplined. Healy, on the other hand, and he believed in, in, in discipline in the party. Healy, on the other hand, uh, was impulsive, uh, had come up the hard way, sort of, sort of, sort of, so to speak, had come up the hard way. He was impulsive. He was supported by the Irish Catholic newspaper, a paper that still exists. He also was supported occasionally by independent newspapers. Um, uh, but he was, uh, he was a man who believed that the power should be exercised in the constituencies, that the constituencies should elect the MP rather than the party at central level, whereas Dillon, Parnell and the others wanted the power to be of selecting candidates to be central, something very different to what we have today, in order that they would maintain the sort of discipline that was needed to be able to exploit any opportunities that arose in parliamentary terms in Westminster, that they had the discipline and control over their members uh, to achieve that. Um, he, uh, and similarly, I think his conflict, his con he had a bit of a conflict with William O'Brien in that respect because William O'Brien um, setting up the United Irish League in 1898, which is different from the All for Ireland League, but uh, he wanted the reunification of the party after the Parnell split to be achieved if you like, from the bottom up, that the organisation would come together and more or less impose unity on the MPs, whereas Dillon felt that if they were to be effective in Westminster, there had to be a reconciliation made at the, at the top. He was very interested in education, and one of the most, according to Lee Lyons, one of the most remarkable speeches he made, of many remarkable speeches, was in 1899, advocating what was eventually achieved as one of, I think, the great achievements of the Irish party, uh, the establishment of the National University. Dillon said, the wealth of Great Britain lies in her mines and minerals. The wealth of Ireland lies in the brains of her children and the fertility of her soil. And hence, to exploit its resources, it needed a national university. And he went on to say, somewhat contradicting something I said earlier, but to quote uh, a man in Mayo who was barely clad adequately. I know they're very clever from County Mayo anyway, but he, he said, he talked of a poor man he met in Mayo, he said this in the House of Commons, who could quote Homer. Sort of the Bob Dylan of his time, in case you, in case you needed the introduction. That's who Homer was. I'm afraid I couldn't quote Homer, but you could do it, Charles. Um, um, I think his priorities are probably well summed up in the five-point plan that he and his colleagues in the anti-Parnellites, who were the majority, drew up with a view to uniting the party between the Parnellites and the anti-Parnellites, bringing the Parnellites back into communion with the rest of Irish nationalism. Uh, there were five priorities. One, that unity should be restored on the same organisational basis as had applied between 1885 and 1890. In other words, a disciplined party of the kind Parnell had created. Second, that the Irish party should be independent of English parties. A very important principle which possibly prevented John Redmond from joining the coalition in 1915, perhaps at great cost, but it was an important principle, that the number one aim of the party would be home rule, but that other issues, land, taxation, and labour education would be pursued, uh, 
And most importantly, and I think given that John Dillon was the chairman of the anti-Parnellite group, most importantly, that the leader of the new reunited group would be from the Parnellite side. In other words, it would be one of the others, either Tim Harrington or J.J. O'Kelly or, as it transpired, John Redmond. Now, the generosity of somebody who led the bigger group offering to serve under somebody from the smaller group in the interests of unity, I think says a tremendous amount about uh, John Dillon. Um, John Dillon had to deal, and I agree very much with what Tom Carew said earlier, about the ambiguity in Irish nationalism, or the unwillingness of Irish nationalism essentially to face up to the reality of resistance in Ulster to coercion to enter a united Ireland. Something that nationalists, at least in public, even to this day, have a difficulty recognising. Now, yes, we put it in our, we removed Articles 2 and 3 from the Constitution, but the rhetoric that you still hear and the rhetoric that was sort of celebrated around the 1916 commemorations was that we had an indefeasible right to a united Ireland regardless of what the people of four or six northeastern counties thought. Now, Irish nationalists have had and continue in many respects still to have an unwillingness to face up to that and even an unwillingness to face up to what they have already agreed to in the Good Friday Accord. And here, John Dillon said in March 1915 in Belfast, we will never consent to divide this nation. Uh, but he went on and said Ireland will stand by England in its hour of need in the war that was then going on. We will never consent to divide this nation. But I discovered a very interesting quote in Frank's book this morning where Frank was quoting what Tim Healy was saying when he was writing to his brother Morris in February 1914. And he, as we know, you all know by now, Tim Healy was not a great fan of John Dillon. But he said, and I quote, Dillon is going about talking to the Liberals in favour of the exclusion of Ulster. He says, how can we coerce Ulster with our own record against coercion? And that we cannot face civil war as a beginning to home, of home rule. If only John Dillon was saying publicly what he was saying privately to the Liberals, he would have helped, I think, advance the understanding in this part of Ireland of the reality of our inability to this very day to coerce four or six counties in the northeast of Ireland against their will into the United Ireland. It can't be done. And yet we keep genuflecting to it as if it could. So I think it's clear that John Dillon, privately at least, had a much deeper understanding of the situation than he could utter publicly. As we know, he was defeated in East Mayo, as were the Irish Party candidates all over Ireland, apart from uh, in North East Ulster, where a number of seats were uncontested, and in 
Waterford, where John Redmond's son won the seat against Sinn Féin, and indeed where Joe Devlin defeated Eamon de Valera in West Belfast. Um, a lot of people say, well, this was a sweeping victory for Sinn Féin. Well, I have some questions to ask about that. I was reading a history, an excellent history of Meath that has just been brought out. It's, uh, it's as befits the county, it's a weighty volume. Uh, a long and deep, difficult and heavy volume to read. But uh, it refers to the North Mead election in which Liam Mellows uh, was um, the candidate against Dr Cusack, who was standing for the Irish party. And this member of the volunteers, and this emerges from the statements that have only recently become available in the military history records, boasts that... Well, we were able to drive Cusack's agents out of a given number of polling stations, so we had the place to ourselves. <laughs> you have no idea what might have been happening there in terms of the number of votes that were being cast. And, of course, the graveyards were to prove, in those circumstances, a very, uh, very strongly for Sinn Féin. Um, I remember a man in Dunboyne, family I, I know. I'm not going to identify him any further, as some of you... May, here may even know who I'm talking about. And uh, he was a Sinn Féin activist. In fact, he'd been in Dublin in 1916 uh, as a volunteer. But he was enthusiastic for Sinn Féin in, in December 1918. So he, he was able to borrow different coats and different hats from different people. And he'd keep coming into the station saying, well, I'm uh, Michael Murphy, I'm John Smith... I'm J.J. McCarthy. And eventually, he did this, I think, 40 times. And on each occasion, I'm no doubt he voted uh, against Mr. O'Donoghue, who was the Parliamentary Party candidate in favour of whoever the Sinn Féin candidate was. Um, to the point that years later, whenever people met, Peter was his name, they, the sort of greeting he'd get, well, who are you now, Peter? <laughs> because... Who are you now? That was the question he was always being asked by the Sinn Féin agents who were in controlling the polling station in Dunboyne, uh, so that he would just tell them who he was and off he'd go, he could vote. So I don't think um, John Dillon was exaggerating at all when he wrote to T.P. O'Connor uh, giving the reasons for their loss and he talked about, in, amongst other things, uh, intimidation and personation. Um, he also was annoyed with the church because he felt the Catholic Church had used Sinn Féin to destroy an independent lay party so that they could recover their own direct power over politics in Ireland. And judging for what, from what happened between 1920, the early 1920s right up to the 1960s, you could say perhaps he was right about that, and perhaps the church is not the better for that. Uh, he also blamed the execution and the old hatred of England that that had um, re-engendered. Uh, he admitted the Irish party had themselves made uh, significant mistakes. But I think, and on this note I conclude, we're a democracy today for many reasons, and I think you know the 
W.T. Cosgrave and Eamon de Valera both deserve great credit for the fact that we're a democracy, uh, unlike so many other uh, places that got their independence around the same, same time as we did in the immediate, immediate aftermath of the Great War, 1920, 21-22. Within five to ten years, many of them had ceased to be democracies, whereas we continued to be a democracy. But I think, apart from the tremendous wisdom of General Mulcahy and W.T. Cosgrave in insisting that nobody interfere with the handover of power to Fianna Fáil in 1932, and many in the army were willing to intervene to stop that, and they had the courage and foresight, both Mulcahy and Cosgrave, to stop that. But I think even more fundamentally, the fact that the land of Ireland had been reclaimed by and was now in the, not the control of the people who were working it, and that that had been achieved by successive land acts that were as a result of the disciplined efforts of the Irish Parliamentary Party. Because of that, we created a sort of middle class in rural Ireland, a group of people who had a stake in the country, who certainly wanted change, but didn't want that change to come at the price of chaos. It was that group of people, that stake that that group of people had in the country, that created the conditions which made it possible uh, for um, Cosgrave and de Valera to do what they did. And if you compare that with the situation, say, Central and Eastern Europe, countries that were as you know, well off then as we were, because landlordism hadn't been ended there and had to be overthrown as one of the first stacks of the new independent government, the frictions that the overthrow of landlordism in a very short space of time, rather than over a prolonged period of 25 or 30 years, the fact that that had to happen put such strains on the initial democracy that the democracies didn't survive. And I think our democracy, therefore, owes tremendous debt, not just to um, Dillon and Redmond and, and Healy and O'Brien, for the fact that home rule became law in September 1914. But even more so, we owe them a debt for the fact that the land of Ireland came into the control of the people of Ireland peacefully. And it was a truly revolutionary overturning of something that had existed for 200 years. That's why we should commemorate them. And I think it's a more relevant thing to be commemorating than the discharge of, of, uh, of revolvers and rifles and bombs and all of that. Thank you. Thank you, John, for uh, that. And I, I, I think it's just simply wonderful as a historian to have a, a politician with that sense of history which uh, John brings to his, to his, so his, um, his uh, politics. Um, and he mentioned my interest in the National Library and John Dillon's uh, uh, interest in the National Library. Can I just simply put on record that when John was Parliamentary Secretary in the Department of Education in the 1970s, that he was the first politician in independent Ireland to take an active interest in the National Library. It was always the Cinderella within the 
uh, framework of the Department of Education. And when John was, was a parliamentary secretary, it was the first time a minister or a parliamentary secretary or a, a, a junior minister, as we call them now, uh, took any interest in the institution. And um, we're grateful to him for that. Okay, I suppose we have...